G'day, humans. Welcome to the show that doesn't deal in absolutes, that doesn't deal in blacks and whites. So many shows, so many politicians, so many commentators, so much of your social media feed expects either your agreement or disagreement, either your furious love or your furious anger. I do not. I ask only that we give each other the benefit of the doubt that we wrestle with ideas we reject as well as those we think are right. Let's escape the dogmas of conventional wisdom. Let's have conversations that straddle the cultural divide and make us all just a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, a fascinating individual. She is a journalist, but really a publisher. But really a psychologist, but really a thinker. Claire Lehman is the founder of the online magazine Quillette, which she founded five years ago to push back against what she saw as a certain stuffiness and kind of rigidity of thought in a lot of mainstream publications. That online publication has since become huge in certain circles in the United States, probably bigger there than it is in her home country of Australia, especially amongst a certain type of sort of Silicon Valley, libertarian-adjacent, intellectual dark web type of American tycoon who is somewhat fed up, really, with the stuffiness, dullness, predictability of the mainstream media. Claire had written for publications like The Guardian, Harvard's Kennedy School Review, Scientific American, ABC News, um, and the Sydney Morning Herald has called her one of their 10 Aussies who shook the world in tech and media. But really what she's about is trying to find new ways to have conversations about the most important things that confront us. Since that's what this show is about, I thought I would sit down with Claire and talk about how we can have a conversation about having conversations. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy Claire Lehman. A big example that happened a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, um, was James Damore at Google. He attended a diversity um, workshop um, for inside Google and he was asked to write reflections on this workshop, diversity training workshop, something like that. And he wrote a memo and it was critical of the diversity training and it included a whole bunch of scientific references about psychological sex differences between men and women. Now, a very famous finding in psychology, in sex differences psychology, is that men and women on average tend to have different preferences for their careers. So women are more interested in careers that involve people and men are more interested in careers that involve systems. Now, this is on average. There are, of course, exceptions to the rule, but on average there is that uh, tendency. So his memo, in parts it may have been clumsily written, but in general it was scientifically valid and relied on, um, you know, peer-reviewed evidence. He was fired for writing that memo. 
And before he was fired, people were talking about this internal memo at Google. An engineer had written an anti-diversity memo. It wasn't anti-diversity. It was just anti-orthodox, anti-diversity in terms of um, having the attitude that unless we have 50% women, we're failures in terms of promoting diversity in the workplace. And he emphasized things like having, what about diversity of viewpoint? What about diversity of class? What about diversity of um, political perspectives and that type of thing? So before he was fired, I sent out his memo to um, a range of psychologists and scientists that I knew, and I got their feedback on whether the memo was scientifically valid. And all of them said it was, and they, you know, disagreed with a few points here and there, but overall their feedback was that it was a defensible memo from a scientific point of view, but he was still fired and he was described as anti-diversity, anti-women, anti-feminist. And um, so that that occurred a few years ago and that um, that was a, a an episode that really stood out for me because it underscored the reality that you can actually be censured or get into trouble in the workplace for citing studies, scientific studies. Mm. And that happened again uh, recently, as you say, with the, the, the person who was ostensibly fired apparently just for retweeting this academic paper by an African-American scholar about how violent protests are less effective than peaceful protests. Yes, yes. How widespread do you think it is? Don't you think it's widespread in normal mainstream society, but I think in certain institutions it's very widespread. So in academia um, and to some extent the media, particularly in the United States. Certainly I have friends in media institutions in America and they are terrified of being cancelled for saying something uh, that is perceived as as not even bigoted, just just not going along with the with the current trends. Well, I think you're, you're touching on, I think, what's one of the central cruxes that I want to dig into today, which is that terms like bigoted are changing underneath our feet yeah. and it's hard to keep up with. So there's yeah. a, uh, you know, I was saying to, to Stan Grant a few weeks ago that there's a, there's a rhetoric that you learn in talking about things like race and gender yeah. if you're privileged and well-educated uh, and you study your critical race theory and critical gender studies and so on at yeah. university yeah. that codifies what tolerance and, and enlightenment means in certain sort of ways of talking. Yeah. And if you don't abide by those ways of talking, yes. you are now not just a bigot, but I mean yeah. some people would say, would say a white supremacist That's if right. you talk in the ways that a farmer in Western New South Wales yeah. might talk, mm-hmm. even if he's really not a bigoted person at all. Yeah, he's like yeah. genuinely not racist and yeah. hates racism, yeah. but he's not woke enough to understand that yeah. he's supposed to acknowledge that we live in a white supremacist yes. superstructure and that yes. everything is imbued with, uh, you know, dominant narratives and things yeah. like that. Like yeah. That's just not a language that he yeah. communicates in. Um, so I think you're pointing to the uh, the inflation of sins from being yeah. personal animus, yeah. I suppose, yeah. to uh, a- an ignorance of or a rejection of yeah. a kind of way of talking and thinking about these issues. Yeah. And there's two books that have come out in the United States recently that have rocketed up to num- being number one on the Amazon best-selling list. One is White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, 
And one is um, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. Mm. The How to Be Anti-Racist one is very disconcerting because the thesis is so simple and his thesis is basically that you're either a racist or you are an anti-racist. And so, you know, we used to believe that racism was a something that you did, something that, you know, you would call someone, you would discriminate against someone actively, you would be horrible to another person, you would demean someone, you you know, you would do hateful things to another person or another group of people. Now it's defined not as an act of commission but an act of omission. So if you're not constantly signaling on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook that you're an anti-racist, then you're complicit in white supremacy. So I think that's what you're getting at, that it's these definitions are shifting under our feet and we're finding that more and more people are not being able to keep up with how definitions are moving and, you know, it's these theories are sort of designed in a way to capture a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's there are a couple of things going on there in the anti-fragile, sorry, in the white fragility, white fragility, and how to be an anti-racist uh, books. Yeah. One is you need to pick a side. Yep. Right, uh, and to some extent, I think that's a separate question. You might be able to make an argument, like take a take something, take an issue that's less volatile, like, mm. say, the environment. I can yeah. understand you making a logical case that yep. to do nothing about the environment is to be complicit in a system that is destroying the environment. So yeah. if you care about the environment, like, it's not good enough to just say, yeah. oh, look, I'm on the fence. I'm, not, I'm neither yeah. pro-green nor anti-green. If yeah. you do that, then you're anti-green. Like, I can understand yeah. that logic. But where it falls down in this particular case is that the definition of what it means to be anti-racist, this loops back to my previous comment about, uh, like, um, sort of critical gender studies and critical race theory yeah. is not actually to oppose yeah. racism, is not yeah. actually to try to to rise above differences in melanin, yeah. uh, but is to uh, perform yeah. a certain style yes. of, yeah. of credibility garnering yeah. in a yeah. way. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Ibram Kendi because I happen to have a review of his book it says, How to Be a Ra- an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi Review, a brilliantly simple argument. We are either racist or anti-racist. There's nothing in between, argues this powerful memoir and political guide. Um, once you get caught in that trap, then there's no escaping it. It's sort mm. of like a religion because yeah. the only source of confession is from the people who are, who have created the dogma in the first place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it... it, it- politicizes absolutely everything. If he, if everything is either racist or anti-racist, I mean, where does it end? Is my coffee racist or anti-racist? Is, you know, going to a wedding racist or anti... Like, it's totalitarian. Ultimate. Coffee's definitely racist <laughs> because do you know the colour of the skin of the people who pick those coffee beans? I saw... A, do you know who Philippa Sue is? No. Um, uh, a famous actor and performer, Broadway star, apparently. A yep. blue checkmark person. Yep. And she tweeted... Cancel culture. If you're cancelled but don't wish to be, you must work to earn back people's respect by owning up to the thing that cancelled you in the first place, listening to others, educating yourself, and advocating on behalf of the people that you've offended or harmed. And I retweeted that and said, if you don't want to be burned at the stake, you Mm. simply need to own up to being a witch and listen. Mm. To which someone responded, why is listening scary to you? (laughs) 
Well, I think you made a really good point before, and that is that this vocabulary that's being popularised online and that's associated with anti-racism is is new and it is uh, it's coming from universities and elite universities in the United States. And who goes to elite universities in the United States? Well, it's rich people or at least upper middle class people. And so there's a, there is a class element here where upper middle class people, doesn't matter what colour they are, are using a language that is inaccessible to the rest of us or to people who aren't necessarily university educated or aren't of that class milieu. And so this idea that unless you know all of the right words, unless you know the language and the theory that goes along with anti-racism, this idea that unless you know, you can keep up with the lingo that you're automatically a racist, it's incredibly uh, classist. It puts all of the working class people who haven't gone to university into the box of being racist. Uh, And so it's incredibly self-serving for these um, well-educated people to uh, basically define themselves as being the morally superior group and everybody else uh, morally inferior. The incredible thing is that the people who are imposing these strictures are quite often white people. Yes. Who are simply signalling to each other how virtu- yes. virtuous they are for being yes. on the bandwagon. I mean, uh, White Fragility is written by a white woman. I know. Talking about how white people can never escape their own toxic racism. I sometimes yes. wonder, maybe she's just racist deep down and she's projecting it onto all the rest of us. And being like, Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like Freud. It's like yeah. everybody wants to fuck their mother. You know, maybe you just you do, dude. <laughs> Well, I think she's made a lot of money from anti-racist training in workplaces. Yeah, she charges many thousands of dollars, doesn't she, to to go into big companies and tell them all how racist they are. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of scientific evidence that shows anti-racist training or implicit bias training or any of these corporate um, training programs do anything. Uh, Yeah, can you dig into that? What do we know about implicit... Implicit bias, because I think it's become so what this is one of those things that's leaked out of the academy into the world. And I think everybody who who has who has read any any newspaper in the past five years is probably now aware, quote unquote, that every decision that we make when we're dealing with people of other races is subtly contaminated by our uh, preconceptions about them. And even if we think we're not racist, we actually are in our dealings with them. Is that borne out? Uh, not really. So the, the implicit bias test comes from a uh, social psychology department in Harvard. And it's a very famous test and it's been taken by millions of people all over the world. However, it's always been a, a work in progress. So even the academics who designed the test themselves have said this test shouldn't be used for any diagnostic purposes. So you shouldn't be giving this test to people to determine whether or not they're racist. And the reason for that is because the same person can take the test at a different time in the day or come back and take the test a week later and get a wildly different result. In psychological terms or psychometric terms, the test doesn't have a lot of validity or reliability. They're they're the sort of the metrics that psychologists use to see how robust the measure is. It's quite weak on those um, 
scales. And then on top of that, he doesn't predict much. So someone can have a bad score or a perceived bad score on the implicit bias test but never exhibit any discrimination in their lives or in the workplace um, and presumably vice versa. So there's very little. I think the, the strongest effect size they've found for the test having any correlation to real-world real world behaviour is 0.2, which is minuscule. That's not going to predict anything in the real world. So it's a test that isn't very reliable and it doesn't predict much in the real world, but it's become incredibly popular because it seems to be an easy way to tell people that they are racist. And I think I think a lot of this comes back to an issue that I briefly mentioned in with regard to James Damore. Because we don't see equal numbers of different demographic groups across society, we have assumed that racism or sexism must be the reason behind there being discrepant representation. So because we don't see 50% of women as CEOs or for, of Fortune 500 companies, it must be because of sexism. Because there aren't equal numbers of women going into computer science, it must be because they've been subconsciously discriminated against in math classes and that kind of thing. So we're trying to attribute uh, gaps in representation to nefarious social processes, but it's just not borne out by the science. What is the science, though? Because I think you're you might be mixing uh, different examples that don't belong together. So there'll be some situations where you know I'll face this all the time when I was presenting the uh, the weekend breakfast show on ABC TV. We'd often have panels, and so you, if you're doing a putting a panel together, yeah. it's important to have some kind of diversity on the panel. You don't yeah. want a bunch of men all sitting there talking yeah. about things because there are going to be things that are raised by uh, you know that, that relate to women that have women have more insight into in particular fields. Um, yeah. I also did a show on Radio National where we would be sort of seeking the the, the global expert in a particular area, mm-hmm. uh, and there the reverse would hold because if you're looking for you know the world's greatest moral philosopher, you're going to go to Peter Singer or yeah. like it's a very rarefied place to be. Yeah. it's just it may be the case that there are structural sexist reasons why there are fewer women as the world's most elite. X, mm-hmm. but you can't change that if you're going for the world's most elite X, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I do think that, that there are different scenarios. So the panel is different from the world expert and the yeah. Fortune 500 company might be different from computer science. Like there, yeah. may, there yeah. may actually be – it may be the case that the Fortune 500 CEOs in a perfectly egalitarian world would be roughly half-half yeah. men and women because yeah. the absolute top – people pro- yeah. maybe that maybe women would be doing doing yeah. that but it might also be the case that there are reasons why we- why girls are a bit less in- interested in computer science than yeah. boys yeah. are yeah. you know what i mean absolutely i think what you're getting at though is this is all very complex and it is complex and there are lots of factors that go into how people are represented in different fields and social factors have a, a lot to do with it but what gets overlooked, I mean, so we're aware of social factors and we're aware of cultural factors, but what often gets overlooked is people's own preferences and people's own 
sort of psychology or their human nature. So when we look at discrepancies among kindergarten teachers or childcare workers, I mean, the majority of childcare workers are female. We don't automatically assume that men are not in that industry because of sexism. I mean, sexism could be part of it, but often men just don't have that preference. They're not going into childcare because they don't want to. Um, And that's one of the explanations that I think we miss or that is missed in popular discussions around discrepancies is that, you know, people have choices, people have agency, people choose to do what they want to do. And, um, and one of the reasons why a test like the implicit bias test has become so popular is because it's very fashionable to explain gaps in, in representation as being entirely culturally dis- constructed or entirely socially constructed and having any kind of explanation that is about personal preferences or psychology or human nature is sort of shunned or not even considered. Right. So you think we should just inject a bit more of that back in? Yeah. At least if yeah. that's where the data leads us. Yeah. The James Damore example at Google is is a funny one because uh, it was literally just raised a few days ago on social media to me as an example of a correct uh, instance of cancel culture because someone was saying... Uh, you know, in Australia, people like people can columnists for the Murdoch Press, for example, will say this is not me speaking. This is the person on on social media speaking. Will mm. say vile things and they'll retain their jobs. But in a decent world, someone who says that women are biologically inferior to men, like mm. James Damore did, mm. would be dismissed like he was. Mm. So the the James Damore Google memo has turned has gone from. Women and men might have different interests, so we shouldn't obsess about yeah. perfect equality in every single uh, field of computer engineering because yeah. sometimes blokes might be better at that. Yeah. To he believes that women are genetically inferior to men. Yeah, well, that's that's a misrepresentation or a mischaracterization of what he actually wrote. Um, I don't have the memo right in front of me. But, the, but, I mean, this happens again and again, doesn't yeah. it? You could go to the recent brouhaha with J.K. Rowling and trans issues and so, and yes. so on where it's now an article of faith amongst my queer friends that she's a rabid transphobe. Yes. And when you say what she said that is actually transphobic, they say, well, it's just her her overall it's outlook. It's just I mean, the vibe her, of it. It's, the, it's, the, it's basically the vibe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, to what extent do you think men and women are different then, biologically uh, speaking, rather than culturally? Uh, so in terms of our psychology, yeah. well, you know, I think there's a there's, there's a great deal of overlap. So in psychology, we look at overlapping distributions, and although the averages might be slightly apart, um, majority of women on most traits, the majority of women and the majority of men overlap. But there are some there are some traits and there are some domains where men and women are quite different. Um, an obvious one is sexuality. So men generally report having interest in a greater variety or a greater, having a greater number of partners than women do. Um, and men generally report thinking about sex more often in the day. And, of course, there's going to be women who can who are, you know, more... Total um, hornbags, yeah. you say <laughs> 
of course, there's going to be women who are who are you know hornier than men, and and vice versa. But on average, we all know it's common sense that you know the interest in sex is slightly different between men and women. Uh, another difference is one that I mentioned before is interest in career preference. So men are tend to be more interested in uh, systems, so anything relating to mechanics, engineering, uh, that type of thing, and women, you know, so we hear all the time that men uh, dominate STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, but that's not actually true. If you take a look at psychology, biology, medicine, and vet science, women by far outnumber the amount of men, particularly in at the uh, college level, the university level. So women dominate in medicine, biology, psychology for sure, and uh, more and more even the law. So a great, there's greater numbers of women going to law compared to men. So anything to do with language, anything to do with people, women gravitate towards, uh, whereas men have have that interest in um, systems and quantitative reasoning. But that, I've obviously I'm just talking in averages and I'm not meaning to um, minimise the fact that there's always going to be individuals who buck the trend and that's really important. And that's what feminism was meant to be about. Feminism was originally allowing women who didn't fit the feminine stereotypes to be themselves, to go out and um, pursue their dreams and do what they wanted to do and and compete with men in um, traditionally masculine fields. And so we always have to remember that just because we're talking about averages that exist among a group, individuals themselves are, you know, we can never take a group average and apply it to an individual because an individual might be completely different than most of the people in their group. Mm. I mean, it's funny because part of what feminism was, was that, was allowing women who don't want to be girly to go and do things, quote-unquote, masculine professions. Yeah. But another part of second-wave feminism that is in sort of crisis at the moment, I feel, is the the ownership of womanhood as being a powerful thing in its own right. Yeah. And the, the need not to conform to masculine ideas about yeah. what is okay and what is not okay. That yeah. actually being a woman is a really kick-ass thing to be, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. and that it has its own power yes. and uh, the diminishment or the dilution of that at the moment in kind of modern gender queer feminists like 2020s like yeah. I don't quite understand what's going on but, <laughs> but this is what the kids seem to be talking about at the moment where yeah. there is no there are no uh, biological gender traits and so the whole thing is just a grab bag where anyone can pluck from whatever yeah. part of the concern and I wonder if you share it of feminists yeah. of a certain age is that you actually lose womanness. Yeah, you lose yeah, what was being yeah. fought for in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what some of the people like J.K. Rowling are worried about, I think. I think they're concerned that womanhood is being erased by this. They call it gender ideology. This is this concept that you can basically self-identify self a man or a woman just whenever you feel like it. So, I mean, it used to be that being transgender or transsexual would was a process and people were quite, you know, very serious about it and it would take time to transition and then you would be 
you you might go through a, a trans um, operation, that kind of thing, and then you would be transgender or transsexual. Now there's this; it's become more fashionable to be non-binary, queer, that type of thing. Not that there's a problem with that, but what people like J.K. Rowling are concerned about is being a biological woman being trivialized or minimized and they associate because they are second wave feminists they associate being a biological woman with being subjugated and i said i think there's some merit in the argument i don't fully agree with that but for the second wave feminists they feel very strongly that to be a woman to be socialized as a girl to have you know all of the biological processes that go along with being a female that does make you different and that needs to be recognized and protected. Mm. I mean, I agree with it up to some, up to to a point. Like I think sports, in sports, it's reasonable to separate biological females from biological males. But um, I I sit somewhere in the middle. Like I see, I think um, the second wave feminists probably take it too far. Mm. Yeah, I've heard, and I should preface this conversation because it's such a topic, (laughs) toxic uh, topic that can so easily be misinterpreted that yeah. um, I am a thousand percent supportive of trans people yeah, and yeah. Um, uh, I absolutely love and adore a great num- a great number of them who I know and I think yeah. we should recognise that the vast majority of them take it very seriously yeah, and have yeah, been yeah, historically yeah. oppressed yeah, and yeah, not doing yeah. it frivolously. Yeah. But that when the questions come to what does gender actually mean and yeah. how does it intersect with yeah. sex? I have heard the case that you're making put, for example, by Jermaine Greer as well, where she says, yeah. if you haven't grown up as a girl, yeah. if you haven't had the patriarchy yeah. uh, judging you, pushing, yeah. putting you into a box, treating you the way yeah. that society treats girls, then you have a different experience from someone who's grown yeah. up as a biological uh, yeah. girl. And I can understand that. I can understand a desire to retain some some link yeah. between the experience of having a female physiology and yeah. the, and the experience of being female and even Rowling herself you know not to bang on about her in her absence says that she uh, is a thousand percent supportive of trans yeah. people but she just yeah. doesn't necessarily say that every single person who identifies as a trans woman is the same as a yeah as a biological woman and yeah. that in itself yeah. is now enough to make you a transphobic bigot who yeah yeah whose books you shouldn't read I think it's also important to point out that transgender people and transsexual people aren't necessarily on board with all of the demands of the activists of the trans activists someone I follow and I admire on Twitter is Buck Angel I actually just spoke to Buck last week and I'm oh, really? on this podcast yes yeah. and I haven't really released it but he's fantastic but to yeah. explain to people who Buck is uh, well, I don't know his story uh, as well as you probably do, but he he's a pioneer and he uh, was And by born... the way, don't worry if you're a listener and you haven't heard it. I haven't dropped it yet, <laughs> but we will, I'm going to do a, a proper, more fully-fledged fully thing on uh, trans issues. Yeah. I'll include Buck in, the, Buck in it. He was born a female, a biological female, and I don't know how old he was when he transitioned, but he... Was a I think pion- he was in his twenties. Yeah, he was a pioneer in um, trans awareness, and he's a porn star, porn actor, actor, and a famous one. You almost just misgendered him. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I heard an I heard a sibilant s in the word actor, actress. Oh, I mean actor. Oh god, they're coming for me. Uh, yeah, he's a and he's a big bearded like you know. Yeah, he's very a, he's masculine. A masculine yeah. bear. Yeah. Um, but um, physiologically, sexually, he he's still uh, he's still 
biologically female. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, he doesn't buy into any of this. He pushes back a lot on the trans activism and he'll talk about how, you know, when he goes to the doctor, he has to be very frank with his biological issues. You know, he has to take medication, that kind of thing. And he's just, I think he, I mean, he, he just pushes back against the idea that we can't have disagreement, we can't have debate on some of these issues around biological sex and gender identity and I think that's fair enough. I mean, we should never we should never subscribe to an idea that one size fits all. I mean, we're all different. We're all individuals. We have different approaches and different needs and um, ha- just having these blanket dogmas that we have to support and subscribe to, it, it's, it's, it's going to be unfair for a lot of people. What about the idea that people who aren't trans shouldn't talk about it and people who aren't women shouldn't talk about (laughs) feminism and guys shouldn't be, you know, there is a sense, an increasing sense, uh, and it it applies to race as well, Mm. uh, that we shouldn't really be even having the conversations like this. Like if we want to talk about trans issues, then trans people should be talking about trans issues. And if we want to talk about Indigenous issues, then Indigenous people can talk about Indigenous issues. Where do we get off? So we should segregate conversation is basically the argument. I think I think it's uh, limiting and it doesn't necessarily encourage empathy if we're going to um, put boundaries around uh, topics of conversation. I mean, I think there's some validity to that argument for sure. But in general, you know, part of being a human being is empathising with other people who are not yourself. And, you know, we used to encourage perspective-taking, putting each putting ourselves in another person's shoes. And, I mean, that's one of the issues that people in fiction and the arts are having problems with at the moment or even actors being told that they can't play, you know, like actresses like Scarlett Johansson not being able, she's not allowed to play or she's been um, criticised for playing, you know, a trans character in a film well, she was She's, going to and then she had to pull out. And the yeah. latest version of that is Halle Berry. Halle Berry had g- gave a, an interview in which she said that uh, she was considering a, a movie, and I've got the quote here actually, uh, the film is about a character where the woman is a trans character, so she's a woman that transitioned into a man, Halle Berry told the reporter. And, uh, of course, the fact that she said that she's a woman who's transitioned into a man rather than the person, the character is a man yeah. who happened to be assigned female at birth, but was always actually a man, even though they had uh, female biology. Yeah. Has gotten in her. That's transphobic in itself. So she yeah. was attacked and she pulled out, and uh, she was. It was actually, um, uh, yeah, that's right. She pulled out of the running uh, at all, and she said, "I vow to be an ally, and I'm so sorry." And all of the usual yeah. genuflection that you have to do when the yeah. mob comes yeah. comes for you. So, yes, I assume that you think that that puts uh, that that constrains art. Yeah, yeah, and this it's just a different conception of what we used to think art was about. We used to think that art promoted empathy and was bridge-building and required imagination, and now uh, putting these strictures around actors and fiction writers, uh, it seems like we're limiting possibilities and I think the ultimate result will just be art of a lower quality. 
Isn't there a case, though, that, like, I mean, back in the 1950s, who was it? In one of those old movies, like, Mickey Rooney would play, like, a Chinese person, and they'd put his, uh, they'd put his eyes, they'd make his eyes go slanty, and they'd put brown boot, boot polish on his face, and he'd go, oh, me so Chinese! And you'd go, oh, my goodness, couldn't they find a single Asian-American actor yeah. to, to do that? Isn't this just part of the kind of swinging back in the other direction, and maybe it's a little bit of an overreaction, but we'll find a, a middle ground? Yeah, look, I'm not arguing that... Uh, white people should be playing people of colour in the movies or that, you know, um, I'm not I'm not saying that, uh, you, you know, works of art need to be, you know, these issues don't matter, but ultimately it's up to the artist and whether or not a good work of art is produced. Personally, I think that we should judge works of art by their merit, their aesthetic qualities, as opposed to their political messages. Like I I think the politicisation of art is really unfortunate because I think it just leads to boring, repetitive, uninteresting Mm. art. What about the personal conduct of the artist? Uh, Just to open another can of worms. (laughs) (laughs) The Louis C.K. Woody Allen question. Uh, Similarly, I, I... try to appreciate a, an artist's work as being separate from them as an individual. And I think we'll be hard-pressed to find artists, great artists who don't have some demons in their closet. I mean, look at what's happening to Kanye West right now. I mean, it's very common for artists to be psychologically, you know, fragile or unstable or to have some kind of demons in their past. I mean, that that just they're human beings just like the rest of us. And I think that's the wonderful thing about art is that it um, allows people to express things that we wouldn't ordinarily, you know, hear. And it's, I think, I think one of the uh, regrettable things that's happening in our culture at the moment is we're moving away from this idea that people can redeem themselves. So, yes, I think someone like Louis C.K., from what I've read about what he's apparently done, like, yeah, it's creepy and it's gross, but that doesn't mean that people should never have an opportunity for redemption and to um, be forgiven. Uh, And, you know, with all of this talk about people being problematic and people not, you know, uh, transgressing, it's like, well, where, when do we forgive? Like, what? how many years have to go past when we can just say, okay, so you did a bad thing, now we forgive you and let's move on? Like, I think we're missing that part of the conversation. Also, even if we wanted to exclude him from polite society forever, yeah, can't we still watch his old stuff? <laughs> like- <laughs> if he doesn't get paid, like, okay, let's make him not get paid, okay? Yeah. Let's, like, strip him of all his copyright. Yeah, yeah. But can't I still watch an old comedy special? Because yeah, it's all been removed from online. You can't watch it, it anywhere. Yeah, all of his stuff has really? been removed. I didn't the moment, know that. The moment that happened. This is part of the whole problem is, like, it's not just moving forward. And, like, Woody yeah. Allen still has a movie in the can that yeah. hasn't been re- released. Right. That I'd really like to see because I like Timothy Chalamet who's in it. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. And, and, I mean, just confidentially, although I'm now speaking publicly, I suppose, um, a very famous um, celebrity who's an interviewer was talking to me the other week and saying that he'd actually gotten a call and had been offered Woody Allen as an interview yeah. here in Australia yeah. um, because uh, Woody's biography, uh, autobiography is coming yeah. out. Yeah. And um, 
he thought about it for a few days and we chatted about it and I said, oh, you should do it. And he eventually yeah. declined. And yeah. um, so, you know, Australian Australian audiences will not be hearing what I think could have been a really interesting scintillating yeah. interview with yeah. one of the most important yeah. and whatever you think of his personal conduct, yeah. frankly, brilliant yeah. uh, comedians of the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. The, pol- this politicization of art leads to more boring art. Because if you're going to get rid of anybody who has a troubled past or is flawed or has behaved in a weird or creepy manner, and I'm not talking is, about like actual criminal. I'm not talking about the Harvey Weinstein. No, sure, type. yes, yeah. But you know, there's there's lots of Just shades creep, of grey. Creepy guys. I mean, the, the thing is, we're not doing it to everyone. I almost wish we were. I wish there was more consistency in yeah. a way. Like, if you want to make the rule yeah. that people who behave in nasty, boorish. Yeah. Uh, or you know, un- or weird ways, uh, or you know, if the, the, the people for whom there's a question mark about whether or not yeah. they did something worse than that, in the yeah. case of Woody Allen, that they, even though he's been exonerated by the two investigations that yeah. looked into the actual yeah. the, the actual bad allegation, which is yeah. that uh, you know he inappropriately touched um, Mia Farrow's daughter while she was little. I think the most people just think that his sin was that he fell in love with Soon Yi, who was, yeah, uh, who, was who was Mia Farrow's stepdaughter, but they yeah. weren't living together. He was not yeah. the father figure, and they've yeah. been married for 25 years now. So yeah. at what point do we say, well, she's a grown woman, she's allowed to, yeah. like, anyway, putting all of that aside, if that was the rule and it was applied equally, I'd go, okay, well, then let's apply it equally, and you'll yeah. see that we're living in a totalitarian yeah. dystopia yeah. because no one in rock and roll would be, yeah. like, the weird thing is this person who was speaking to me about rejecting Woody, Woody Allen interview, yeah. if Mick Jagger had yeah. asked, we would have said, he would have said yes. Yeah. But yeah. All the, I mean, how many... Yeah. Underage girls did Mick Jagger sleep with in the 1970s? I don't know. Yeah, that but would I'd be... be surprised yeah. if it was zero. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the whole, I mean, yeah. the whole thing is yeah. like, I wonder whether it's that we're so connected and there are so many stories that are, that are circulating that we are sort of pawns to a narrative mm. and whatever comes across our desk is the one that lights up and we see. So we go, yeah. that guy's no good. But the problem is that the line keeps shifting and so we don't know what's going to be considered problematic in two, three, four, five years from now. So it was as recently as 2011 or 2012 that Barack Obama was against um, same-sex marriage, for example. But if you were to be against same-sex marriage now, you're a fascist and you're a bigot. So the line shifts, right? And people who were, you know, positions that were considered reasonable 10 years ago are considered completely you know, prejudiced and backwards and regressive now. And so we just don't, we just don't know in terms of, you know, in the 70s maybe it was okay to sleep with 18-year-old groupies, but now we wouldn't consider that to be okay. So what? where where are we going to be in five years from now? We don't know. And, mm. and some, and some behaviour that we think is perfectly acceptable and perfectly normal will be completely beyond the pale. I do worry about that a bit, uh, about what I call uh, outrage archaeology, yeah. where you go hunting for things to get angry about in people's yeah. pasts. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Winston Churchill is persona non grata now because he yeah. was a racist against Bangladeshis. Yeah. Uh, John Wayne is, uh, is, uh, has to be shunned because he said something that was politically incorrect. In a 1950s interview with Playboy, I saw people dredging up that really? was circulating online that went yeah. viral. I was like, he was John Wayne. Of course he wasn't woke. <laughs> it was the 1950s. And people were like, yeah, but I mean, even if he was around now, he'd be a Trump supporter. I was like, no, if he was around now, he'd be Chris Pratt, who is also a Christian 
and you know keeps his political cards close to his chest, mm. but probably holds all kinds of ideas that you don't that aren't don't subscribe to the the mm. full work orthodoxy, mm. um, and is sensible enough not to not to say anything. Mm. How do you feel about? Well, let's talk about Quillette and how it came about because we can transition now to talking about our ability to talk about things, and let's yeah. have a conversation about having conversations. Okay, um, what sparked it? Uh well, explain to people. By the way, the weird thing is that you're probably better known to our US listeners than you are to our Australian listeners, even yeah, though you're yeah. here. So tell yeah. people what Quillette is if they don't know. Okay, so Quillette is an online magazine. It's at Quillette.com. It's double L double T, and I founded that at the end of 2015 when I left my postgraduate education in university. What did you study? I was studying psychology, and I just created a website because I was quite active on social media and I had in my circle I knew some very talented writers and thinkers who weren't uh, didn't have big um, platforms and I saw that this talent was being underutilized so I, I thought I'm going to create my own website and get these people to write for me. So on Colette we have a when I started it I had this um, tagline that we were, were a platform for ideas, even dangerous ones. And I wanted to publish um, essays that were relied on evidence and that were very well reasoned, but which questioned some of the orthodox narratives that I saw being um, popular in mainstream press. And so one of these narratives that I wanted to challenge was that uh, was one that I was talking about earlier, and that is that, you know, just because there aren't 50% of women in, you know, um, Fortune 500 boards or just because there aren't 50% of women on the Google engineering team, does that mean it's because of sexism? Because uh, studying sex differences was a, was an interest of mine and I just knew that there was all of this literature that was really interesting um, that people, the general public is not aware of, this literature around men and women having different career preferences, for example. So I created the platform and invited scientists and academics to write for me about some of these thorny topics um, because I just saw the, the narratives being um, promoted in mainstream media just becoming more and more simple and less uh, well-reasoned and less reliant on evidence. And I thought that was a worrying trend, and I still think it's a worrying trend. So now when you Google Quillette and you look at the critiques of it, of course, there's yeah. always like uh, it, why racists, conservatives, and, yeah. you know, quote-unquote liberals write for Quillette and, uh, you know, yeah. there'll be... There'll be hot smackdowns from Vox about um, yeah. Quillette peddling race science or phrenology or something like yeah. like that. Yeah. What do you make of being in that grouping? Uh, it's very it's very sad. It's very unfortunate, and it's because um, because I studied psychology. There's some areas of psychology that are just extremely taboo. Like intelligence research is extremely taboo, and. I didn't quite realise. And just to put some flesh on those bones, the the point that, that they're making when they say that you're guilty of publishing race science is any any conversation about whether or not there are what IQ differences between different populations, between ethnic, different ethnic populations. Is that right? Yeah. So when I did my undergraduate study, I was at the University of Adelaide and the chair of psychology at the University of Adelaide was an intelligence researcher. And so I was exposed to all of this research that is 
taboo. I didn't realize how taboo it was when I was studying at university. But intelligent, it's not just intelligent group differences in intelligence that's taboo, but any kind of individual differences research is is basically taboo now. It's been associated with eugenics and um, all sorts of. I mean, even within the one race, talking about people's different IQ levels. Oh, if you if you want to have a conversation about that online or on social media. I mean, there was a study that came out recently that showed that um, exposure to lead in children growing up lowered the, their IQ. So that's an environmental input. It's not genetic or anything like that. And people were just going nuts on social media, calling it a eugenicist study, eugenic study, because just the notion that one can have an IQ score is just considered extremely um, nefarious by certain groups of people. Is it because they're worried that certain ethnic groups are likelier to have to live in areas where they're exposed to high lead, or is it even without overlaying ethnicity onto it? I think it's this idea of of a score being a kind of a ranking, having a rank. And so as soon as you put an IQ score on a person, it's like uh, limiting and putting them into a box. I mean, population differences are extremely taboo. And it's not just because it's a controversial area, but the methods aren't um, as highly developed as other areas. So I, I can see why people don't want scientific studies and scientific research into population differences. I think that's reasonable. Yeah. However, the opposition to intelligence research goes beyond that and it's basically opposed to it in its entirety. Sounds mm. like there's a lot of blank slatism going on, right? It sounds yep. like the common thread between a lot of the things that irk you, whether, yeah. it, whether it's like intelligence research yeah. or gender yeah. or whatever, is is your antipathy, and tell me if I'm overgeneralizing, to the idea that humans are infinitely malleable and come out, yeah. of, uh, and come yeah. out of the oven as blank yeah. slates, and yeah. that actually you're saying that's not it's really not what the true. science yeah. says. Yeah, and for people who aren't aware of the term blank slate, that comes from a 2002 book by Steven Pinker, and it was hugely influential on me and the way I think. And uh, and you're right, a big, a common thread that unites a lot of the topics that I'm interested in and a lot of the themes on Quillette is antipathy towards blank slateism and what we would call cultural determinism. So we've all heard, I mean, most of us have probably heard the term biological determinism determinism <laughs> um, which is which is this idea that 100% of what we do and who we are is determined by our genetics now no one really believes that that's just not a, a, a viewpoint held by any serious person however there are quite a few people who seem to believe that who we are and what we do is almost 100% determined by our culture or about or by our social environment. And um, so where I'm coming from is just saying, hold on, guys, what if it's like a bit of both? Like what if it's, you know, on average 50-50? What if our environment matters a lot, but what if also the human nature that we bring with us is also a big player? The funny thing is, Claire, that there seem to be two tracks, one running in the scientific community and the other running in the cultural 
community, cultural studies, uh, academic community. Yeah. And they're going in opposite directions. Yeah. Because actually, the more I understand about the science, like the cutting yeah. edge of science is finding yeah. genetic components to all kinds of things that yeah. we didn't think we yeah. had. You know, yeah. twin studies are yeah, incredible yeah, yeah. when you look at the similarities yeah. between uh, between identical twins yeah. who were separated at birth. Yeah. Uh, you know, studies on siblings who are genetically different yeah. uh, but raised in the same environment still show large differences. Yeah. Look, I've got twins, so I can yeah. tell you from like personal experience, just yeah. my N of one or rather two yeah. is that they they came out different. Like they yeah, were different. Yeah. They were different yeah. from day one, and they've yeah. they've been persistent over time in their yeah. differences, even before even when they were too young uh-huh. to to be subject to environmental factors. And I think most parents will say that even yeah. if you have one kid, then you have a second you kid, and you go, oh, this one's absolutely different, right? Yeah. And you realize how limited your environmental inputs are in changing yeah. who they are because yeah. there are certain certain traits that they that that are intrinsic to them. And mm-hmm. yet at the same time, you've got this parallel track of yeah. cultural studies, gender yeah. studies, ra- critical race theory, yeah. where it seems to all be there's no difference between any of us at all. Yeah. We're infinitely malleable and all of the world's problems are caused by yeah. uh, power structures and power dynamics yeah. with uh, white straight males at the apex essentially ruining life for everybody else yeah. below them. And it's, I think you've, that's a very perceptive comment and I think that's true. And, and the strange thing is that one of those tracks is more influential at the moment, particularly in uh, our cultural institutions, um, than the other. And it's the one that doesn't have the evidence behind it. And that is, you know, this all of this material that's coming out of cultural studies and critical race theory and gender studies. Um, and it's, it's very strange to me that the fields that are most, that are the weakest in terms of their methodology are the most influential in our broader culture. And I think it's, I think it's worrying, but yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to do my bit with Colette in bringing a bit of balance to the conversation um, but it's not easy. And like you said before, I've been smeared and described as a racist and all sorts of horrible names, called all sorts of horrible names, but you just have to keep going. Why do you think the cultural theory is becoming more dominant in, and it's not just in cultural conversations, but everywhere in the media and yeah. in, you know, what is, what is and isn't okay to say at, a, at your neighbor's dinner party um, yeah. than the scientific one? Because a few years ago, I remember having conversations. So when, like, Brett Weinstein, for example, lost his job or Nicholas Christakis, mm. do you want to just – do you remember those situations? Yeah, and do you yeah. want to articulate for people what sort of happened in that – in, I suppose, the campus uprisings of yeah. whenever that was, five years ago-ish? Well, Nicholas Christakis, who's a sociologist and also a physician, at, he was formerly at Yale. Uh, he's not anymore – I think he is at, still at Yale, sorry, but he doesn't have an administrative position. Uh, he was um, sort of stalked by a mob and shouted down in a quadrangle on the Yale campus because he um, defended an email that his wife had written. Now, he and his wife had admin positions and they were sort of like the master of a house where students go and live. Anyway, and master is a word that's been erased now from yeah. Yale, hasn't it? Because yeah. um, yeah, what Connet- people thought, slavery of, thought it was like slavery, even yeah. though obviously it comes from the old English uh, idea of masters and yeah. lords and yeah. so on. But yeah. So his so what happened was uh, Halloween was coming up, and they had 
you know, people were um, sending emails around saying you can't dress as this and that. You can't be, you can't engage in cultural appropriation during Halloween. And Nicholas Christakis. So, so for people who are outside of the states, you know, sometimes college students might dress up as Native American Indians yeah, or something, yeah, and yeah. you know, or wear a sombrero hat, yeah, yeah, or as a Mexican or something yeah. like that. And this was saying, make sure that whatever you dress up as is yeah. not couldn't be interpreted as being offensive. Yeah, and uh, Nicholas Christakis's wife sent an email back or to the students saying, let's not. Uh, she didn't think it was the role of the academics, the faculty, or the administrators to police students' Halloween costumes, and she wanted to sort of underscore the fact that they were adults and it wasn't the role of the administrators or the faculty or the people in authority positions to go around policing other students um, or policing the students' Halloween costumes, which is, you know, completely we would consider that completely reasonable. Anyway, there was a, a bit of a meltdown on the Yale, Yale campus and there's this incredible footage of Nicholas Christakis being um, shouted down by a mob and he's being incredibly calm and uh, non-threatening and listening to the students and they're screaming in his face telling him to resign and that he should lose his job all because of this dust-up over Halloween costumes. Then why the fuck did you accept the position? Because who I have the a fuck hired you? I have a different vision. You should step down. If that is what you think about being a fanatic, you should step down. It is not about creating an intellectual space. It is not. You understand? What happened on Ever- at Evergreen State College was worse, and there's a documentary about it, and there's a few there's articles about it. Uh, Students basically took over the campus. There was an incident where or there was there was a day where all white staff and white students were asked to leave to stay stay away from campus and Brett Weinstein and his wife protested that. They thought that it was racist. And this was an inversion of a traditional day of absence that had taken place where African American uh, faculty and students would stay away for a day as a yep. way of sort of indicating to the non-black uh, uh, staff and students that how important they were. And yep. so this year uh, they decided to invert that and instead of staying away, they wanted all, all white people to stay off campus. Mm-hmm. And he regarded that inversion as being a perversion of the spirit of Martin Luther King. And um, yeah. and Brett is an old lefty. I mean, he, he was a Bernie yes. Sanders supporter, yeah. so it's not like, you know, he was yeah. racist. But this ended up and, becoming an intolerable situation for him. Yeah, and he's also Jewish, and so he's aware of where this kind of racial antagonism can lead. And I think he's brought that up a few times in his discussions about what happened at Evergreen. Anyway, the... Things sort of spiralled out of control on Evergreen and there is, I mean, I can't recount, you know, the blow by blow of exactly what happened, but it culminated in in groups of students walking around with baseball bats and Brett having to flee the university um, and being protected by police. And at one point the president of the university was basically imprisoned in a library and there's footage of him asking the students to let him go to the toilet and they declined. So they basically took over the university. Uh, and the worst thing about that scene is what a complete wuss he is uh, and how, moral, how he has owned, he is so 
co-opted yeah. and been inculcated with the ideology yeah. of the woke racial justice yeah. students that he can't even see that he is literally being held hostage. And yeah. he's like, oh, okay, yeah, no, well, I'm totally, you know, he's yeah. just tap him with a feather and he, yeah. he, he buckles. Yeah, it's, there's this, you can, I've seen it just yesterday or this morning with, uh, there's footage of Ted Wheeler, who's this um, very progressive mayor of a very progressive city in the United States called Portland. And there's been lots of protests in Portland. It's like the 56th day of protests. And he's, there's this footage of him going out and talking to the protesters and they start bullying him, like, you know, swearing at him and calling him a fascist. And there's, there seems to be little awareness. I mean, look, I can't mind read, but it, it seems like some of these leaders just can't appreciate that they might be getting bullied. Mm. <laughs> like all of the grievances of the protesters or the aggrieved students or the people who are upset are almost... Um, they're considered just valid just by default. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the great... One of the things that really alarms me about our political and cultural moment is that yeah. the only people who are doing any vocal standing up to any of this yeah. are people who are quasi-fascists themselves, like yeah. Donald Trump, for yeah. example, who yeah. I think is the worst president mm. uh, ever yeah. and is cynically manipulating this stuff in order to tub thump and, mm. uh, and, and intentionally engineer a far-right backlash against it and a white identitarian backlash, which is the worst possible thing. I mean, the reason why people sometimes say, well, Josh, why are you concerned about all this stuff? Like there's so much yeah. more important stuff to focus on. Why don't yeah. you focus on all of the transgressions about Trump and the things yeah. that the far right is doing? Why do yeah. you criticize your own side on the left? And I say, because I think that we are giving them fuel because yeah. I, I think we are creating yeah. an environment that empowers them. And yeah. you only have to look at how feckless yes. people like the people you're talking about are, you know, the mayor of Portland or, you know, the administrator of uh, uh, Brett Weinstein's university, b- yeah. university mm. to see that we've lost a place of moral clarity or yes. moral courage yes. in the, mm. um, in liberalism, in small-l yeah. liberalism. Yes. We don't have a... They don't feel that they have standing to be able to say, no, shut the fuck up. This is my <laughs> university. Sit yeah. your ass down. Get out there. We're going to deal with this democratically. Yes. You'll be able to have your voice. You'll be able yes. to have whatever submissions you want to, yes. but you're not keeping me hostage in here. I'm going to the fucking toilet right now (laughs) and if you try to stop me then you're going to end up in jail like that has to be something that can be said without you feeling like oh my god am i a bit of a an authoritarian no you're not an authoritarian you just don't want to be held hostage by mobs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i completely agree and you know the people who really have that kind of strength and leadership uh i mean there are people there are leaders like that in the united states but they're few and far between and one thing i've learned over the over the f- past few years is that courage is is quite rare and for leaders to have courage um it's it's like it's more rare for a person to have courage than intelligence like there's lots of smart mm. people there's lots of really talented people who are good at their jobs but having a leader with courage that's rare what does courage look like to you well i an example of courage that I saw recently was this letter that Barry we- Barry Weiss wrote when she left the New York Times. Now Barry was she's a centrist, uh, and she was working at the New York Times in the opinion section, and she was subject to all sorts of bullying by her colleagues, and and this continued over a number of years. She gets 
She gets bullied online on Twitter. Now, her opinions are really mainstream. They're really middle of the road. She's anti-Trump. She's, you know, open, like pro-immigration. She just has a few positions that you would describe as heterodox. Like she wrote, she wrote the article on the intellectual dark web a few years ago and she um, she pushes back against, you know, Marxism and that kind of, you know, overt kind of critical theory type stuff. And she's published, you know, stories written by Iranian um, migrants and, and refugees who are critical of their regime and she's pro-Israel and that type of thing. So she's she's an independent thinker, but her, her viewpoints are very centrist. But she but she was subject to the worst kinds of bullying in her workplace. And the letter she wrote the owner of the New York Times as she left, as she resigned, I thought was very brave and had that moral clarity that mm. you're talking about where she wasn't not afraid to call it out, to call out the the toxic behavior that she was subjected to. And she wasn't apologetic about her um, support of liberalism, small L liberalism. And I just, I thought that was very brave. What are the big threats? Let's just wrap with your kind of, if you want to put on your prognosticator's hat, what are the big threats and the big opportunities for us culturally at the moment? Uh, I think the threat, the, the the threat that I see, I mean, look, in the United States, who knows what's going to happen? I think you're, you're spot on when you say that the far right and the far left are giving fuel to each other. And I don't see how these trends are going to de-escalate anytime soon. So I'm pessimistic about America. Uh, I think in Australia, we have to be careful that trendy theories like critical race theory don't infiltrate the justice system because I think uh, things like colorblind humanism and treating people equally and not giving special treatment to people just because of their gender or skin color or anything like that, that's that's a really important aspect of our legal system that must be protected. And even though these theories might become popular in... um, circles in the media, we have to be very careful that they don't become enshrined into law. Uh, So that, I think, protecting the justice system would be the most important. uh, And also, I mean, also capitalist organisations as well, and I'll come back to you about what opportunities you see, but I I forgot that the reason why I raised Brett Weinstein and Nicholas Christakis before was because when all of that was going down five years ago, a lot of Mm. people were saying... Why focus on these campus? Like there are a few campus flare-ups, but yeah. they're not indicative of anything broader than yeah. just American universities being a little bit weird, which yeah. has always been the case. You know, yeah. universities are hotbeds of strange ideas. And people like, and I think Barry Weiss made this point, if not in her departure letter in a recent column, uh, that uh, what happens in universities is spreads everywhere because yeah, the students yeah. graduate from yeah. universities. So yeah. at the moment, when you were talking about the shifting mores of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable to yeah. say, yeah. right now in an organisation, in a media organisation in Australia, for example, there'll be quite a lot of latitude about what you can and can't say. Yeah. But that's because the people who run media organisations in Australia mm. didn't go to university in the 2000s. Yeah, yeah. When the people who went to univers- who graduated from university in the 2000s are running big media organisations, it's yeah. totally unclear to me whether or not conversations like the one that we're having yeah. are going to be tolerable. Yes. Yeah. 
And it might just be the case that people are going to have to set up their own institutions if they want to preserve the more traditional values of small Well, that's right. Work. And that's what you've done and that's, yeah. what, I, that's what I've done. Um, but it, so what are the opportunities here? Because there must, there mu- they must be there. There must be yeah. diamonds in the rough. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Quillette has been pop... Like, we are... Uh, successful in our own small way uh, because we've got a niche readership of people who are very passionate about the issues that we explore. And because there is such a vacuum of courage and leadership, particularly in the United States around these issues, it is actually quite easy to build an audience and find an audience if one is engaging in sort of sincere, earnest debate around some of these thorny topics because it is rare. And so, yeah, I mean, I do. I definitely think there are opportunities for anybody wanting to engage in the, in the culture, like even artists who are doing um, non-work art. Like I got a submission from a cartoonist yesterday full of these hilarious cartoons that, non-work you know and it's because everything because the uh, legacy institutions are becoming more and more homogenized their output is becoming more boring and so I think there's tremendous opportunity for anybody doing something different and I don't think it needs to be like anti-pc or conservative or anything like that I just think there's more space to be unique and original like if you're not if you're not towing the woke line, there's just more space in that area. All right, the eclectic heterodox revolution. Join us. Join Claire. Thank you, Claire. Great to talk Thanks, to you. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me.